0: One other announcement: um, We have, st- for some time now, we have been locking the service, uh, the um, sanctuary doors, the front doors, once the uh, sermon starts. And what happened um, was it? Two, it was one week ago, right, or two weeks? Mark fifteen, verses sixteen to nineteen. I'm calling this the soldiers' scorn. Mark fifteen, sixteen to nineteen. The soldiers' scorn. Jesus has has now stood before both Jewish and Roman authorities. He has stood before Annas. He has stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin during the night illegally. He has stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin during the day with just the barest amount of legality, he has stood before Pilate on one occasion, and then he was ferried to Herod, and then he was ferried back over to Pilate for the second time, which would be a total of six hearings, not all of them legal. And if there was even an ounce of legality, if there was even an ounce of justice that was being sought after, if, if the, if the truth was being sought after by even the most modicum of degrees, then the charges against Jesus would have been dropped and not only would he have been declared without guilt, without fault, but he would have been let go. He would have been set free. But we know truth and justice are nowhere to be seen. And we saw last week in verse 15, despite all the evidence in the world pointing like a giant spotlight that Jesus is an innocent, righteous man, Pilate, nonetheless capitulated to the people's demands, and his gavel fell. And the sentence has been given, Jesus is to be crucified. We must never, ever forget why this is happening. Sadly, there are many wrong whys. There are many errant views as to what is happening in these verses. Some say Jesus is paying a ransom to Satan. He's buying men back from Satan. That's wrong. Some say he's demonstrating God's love so that man's heart can just be melted and that he might he might be inspired to repent. Some say Jesus is providing the supreme example of obedience to God, and if you can just submit your life to God like Jesus did, then that will save you. That's wrong. The Bible says, and here's the good news, Justin, that you left us begging for this morning. The good news is Jesus Christ took our place. We stand condemned. All mankind, all mankind is corrupt, radically corrupt. All mankind stands condemned before a holy God who sees everything You have ever done, thought, did, or will do. Jesus took our place. That's the good news. Second Corinthians 521, He being God, or the Father, made Him who is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on whose behalf? Our behalf. First Peter 224, He Himself, being Christ, bore our sins in His body. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. Mark 10.45 the son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom an exchange a substitution for many. Don't ever forget the good news is that Christ took our place. Isaiah says, and remember this as he's, as we read about him, as we read the details of him taking our place, remember this. Isaiah 52 says, his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And later on he says, he was despised, he was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the disciplining, the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, scourging, mind you, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There's that total depravity, Justin. Justin. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet what? Yet he did not open his mouth. Isn't this what we have been seeing? Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And you ought to be so grateful. I ought to be so grateful that he didn't open his mouth, that he didn't protest and speak up and defend himself and get his charges dismissed and avoid Calvary. Because if he did, if he did what he was entitled to do, he couldn't have taken our place. So as we get into this these details as he is taking our place, these four verses can verses can be divided into two headings the soldiers in verse 16 and their scorn in 17 to 19. The soldiers and the scorn. Let's read what Mark writes. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Let's look first at the soldiers in verse 16. Mark writes that these soldiers took him away into the palace, which uh, he provides by an editorial comment is the same as the praetorium. Now that tells us a lot about these soldiers. These soldiers are the ones who have been holding Jesus. They have had immediate custody of Jesus as he has, uh, stood just behind Pilate as, as Pilate and the Jews have been arguing about what is to happen to him. That arguing, the, the deliberation, the trial, the hearing has concluded and the sentence has been given and the Jews leave, Pilate leaves and Jesus is now, we can say he's being prepped. For the cross. What is that prep you you want to know? That prep is more brutal, sadistic torture at the hands of these Roman soldiers. And these are not common everyday Roman soldiers. These are Pilate's Praetorian guard. They're the ones who reside in the Praetorium. They operate from the Praetorium. And they take Jesus into the Praetorium. The Praetorian Guard are elite soldiers that Pilate has brought with him when he occasions to leave his home. Where where does he live again? He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in the nice Mediterranean Caesarea Maritima. He lives on the coast. But when his presence is required in Jerusalem, he comes and he doesn't come alone. He brings the, this cohort of Praetorian guards. Why does he come to Jerusalem? Because on three occasions, especially on the Passover, the entire city is swelled as Jewish pilgrims fill it and they flood the city with prayers and sometimes plans for liberation from Rome. And that's that's why Pilate is here, and that's why he has some muscle with him. The Praetorians are a combination of bodyguard and shock troops, and they're specifically trained to put down dissident rebels, to put down insurrectionists, to put down would-be liberators of the Jewish people. They are something like SEALs, Marines, and the SWAT team all rolled into one. They... They have excellent training. They have excellent gear. They, they, before they even began their training, they had a knack for being brutes. Now the traditional site is the Fortress Antonia. Antonia, if you've ever seen a model or a, or a, a, a rendition of the Temple Mount, the Fortress Antonia is this uh, very Roman looking structure on the northwest corner of the Mount. But this is more likely not there, it's more likely Herod's massive palace, which was far grander than the Fortress Antonia. Um, a cohort could not reside in the Fortress Antonia. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh says that um, the the Herod's palace was indescribably splendorous. It was large. It was lavish with rooms, with enough accommodations, or with enough bedchambers for 100 guests. Now think about that at a time when the average home was a single room. Herod's summer palace, Herod's occasional palace that he resides in a couple times a year is large enough to accommodate over 100 people. So that is where the praetorian cohort, which is approximately 600 soldiers, this is where they are stationed. It is from the praetorium that they come as they are summoned. And we see that in verse 16. They are all called together. And there are two considerations that that we should make that will help make sense of the brutality that we're about to read about. First... You, we could all agree there are certain jobs that require certain kinds of people, right? These men were selected and they were, were recruited because the Roman recruiters saw in them men who had raw, natural talent to be brutes. You remember, remember uh, Jacob and Esau? Esau was a manly man. He he smelled of the game. He he loved to hunt. And Jacob was a, was a man of smooth skin. One of those would become an excellent Praetorian. One of those would not. I'll let you decide. Rome saw in these men raw potential to be pro-Roman thugs authorized. To carry out Roman law and protect Roman interests. And they, they took that raw potential and refined them into what they are now. They are skilled. They are elite. They are, they are very good, very good at what they do. That's the first consideration. These are, these are not just normal men. These are not even just normal soldiers. They are thugs. Secondly, these praetorians have been specially trained to respond and neutralize any and all kinds of threats to Rome. When an abduction or an assassination attempt against a governor or any official was made, when rumors of an uprising would stir among the people, when Roman assets would be vandalized, it's these guys, it's these men who are primed and equipped to respond And to put that threat down. Now, what was it that Jesus was accused of again? Misleading the nation? Forbidding his followers, forbidding his fellow Jews to pay taxes to Caesar? Claiming to be a king, claiming to be a rival king who, as the Jewish scriptures were explained... A rival king who is not only gonna kick Caesar out, but he's gonna make Caesar and all these little Romans subjects and servants of Rome. You think these soldiers liked hearing that? So with that in mind, I I think we can better understand why these men, they have a, they have a vested interest. Nobody, Pilate did not ask or order them to subject Christ to this second round of brutality. They are doing this on their own. So we can, knowing that, knowing the kind of men they are and what they've been trained to do and what they've heard about Jesus helps us understand why they have a vested interest in adding, in furthering the suffering and mocking of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the soldiers. Now let's look at their scorn in verse 17. We saw in verse 15 what Did Pilate recognize what was clear to him? Was there any substance? Was there any validity to the charges being levied against Jesus? No, They. Pilate saw, it was clear to Pilate, that the Sanhedrin had a motive in trying to get Jesus executed. That motive was their envy. They were jealous of Jesus. They were jealous because Jesus had the love and the admiration and the loyalty of the people. And so Pilate tried, uh, as we looked at in John 19, Pilate tried to alleviate their envy. He tried to remove the source of their envy by scourging Jesus and parading their king, parading their son of David, their Messiah, before them as a broken, subjugated, humiliated beaten, bloodied, bruised king. And that humiliation involved, as John writes in chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, they put on a purple robe, and they put a crown of thorns on him, and then they proceeded to slap him in the face left and right again and again. And this is after he's already had a bag put over his head, and he's been punched in the face by the Sanhedrin. He is... Utterly bruised. He is swollen. He is beaten and broken. He has black eyes. He has fat lips. He has cut lips. I imagine some of his teeth have been knocked out by this point. I imagine his speech has become affected and slurred. He has become a repulsive atrocity to look at. And that's when Jesus says, or that's when Pilate says, "Behold the man." And I, am, I imagine the Sanhedrin had not they they needed nothing more to do than to say, "This is your king." To the people, this is the object of your hope. This is the this is your fulfillment of God's promises. Give me a break. That was the turning point. That was what caused the people who five days prior said, "Hail him," to now cry out, "Nail him." Now, all that was done before the final gavel fell, if you read John 19. It was before the sentence was given. It was just a a preparatory, uh, or a pre-preparatory beating and mocking. Now, on their own initiative, they serve Jesus to a second helping of the same savage, merciless torture. Only now it's not four or five or six or however, it's the whole cohort. Hundreds and hundreds of brutish thugs, sadistic thugs who love beating people. Now, there's five expressions of their scorn that we're going to look at, and each one serves to make Jesus look like a, a poor, pitiful, comedic parody of Caesar the first first is a mock robe verse 17 says they dressed him up in purple Matthew says that it was a scarlet robe and for reasons that I don't understand some people go aha this is that is proof the 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 Gospel writers they didn't get their facts together. One guy says it's purple, another guy says it's scarlet. You totally can't believe the bible and there is a there is a perfectly plausible uh explanation for this um, What color were the Roman garbs? They were the scarlet they were the bright, vibrantly red scarlet. Now you take one of those uh, uh, bright red scarlet garbs, and you subject it to a a couple years of marching and fighting and warfare and blood and sweat and everything that goes into Essence of Soldier, what color, what's going to happen to that bright, uh, vibrant red? It's going to get dark. It's going to get faded. What do you call a dark, faded red? Not burgundy. Purple. Thank you. So, there, there we, we have solved that contradiction. It is now has a, it has a purplish appearance, and that's significant. Purple is significant because of, of what the color uh, is associated with. Yes, colors uh, are, have associations. If I, if I was up here and I was wearing a, a red, a white, and blue uh, scheme, you, you would think I was being very patriotic. Colors, uh, convey things. Colors are associated with things. Purple, being a very expensive color to produce because of the dye. Uh, I think it came from a slug found in the Phoenician Sea, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Typically, only the very wealthy, only the very most elite in the society could afford to purchase this purple dye and have their clothes dyed purple. The elite had it, royalty had it. Had it. it, it conveyed rank, it conveyed worth, it conveyed nobility, uh, it 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 demanded respect, it exuded prestige and power and prominence. It said, "Look at me, I'm number one, and you're not." We kind of we even have that today. Don't people make statements by the kind of clothes, by the by the brands of clothes that they wear? Now wearing the, putting this purplish robe on Jesus then, the guards, the the soldiers are fashioning him, they are fabricating him into a poor imitation of, of any king, uh, into the, they are making him a, a, a a poor imitation of, of men like Pilate and Herod, but especially of Caesar. They are putting on him a robe who's supposed to look like Caesar, but the robe is a robe that Caesar would never, ever, ever want to wear. Now, you'll see that Caesar is in mind, not just any king. This is Caesar that they have in mind because of what follows. The second thing that they do to him is they put on a mock crown. The robe is not enough. They Jesus needs more things to complete the picture And so they put on him a mock crown. Mark writes, after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And again, this is an imitation of the laurel crown worn by Caesar. If you Google uh, a denarius, you will see, and, and you have permission to that right now if you'd like. You can Google a denarius and you will see the one thing that marks Caesar's image from every other image is the presence of the laurel. Remember earlier in the gospel, uh, uh they came to him trying to trap him and they said, uh, shall we pay tax, shall we pay the poll tax? And what did Jesus say? Give me a denarius. Whose image is on it? And they said, who? Yeah. You know how they knew it was Caesar's? It was because of the laurel. Only Caesar's image had the laurel it was a symbol of political and military power much like the purple robe but you can't put a image of a purple robe on a coin it it conveyed power it conveyed valor it conveyed might like the robe it conveyed it expressed the sentiment i'm number 1 and you're not Now Caesar's crown was made with gold leaves. The one he actually wore was made, uh, uh, by gold leaf, with gold leaves, and it was a symbol. It it, it gave him a, a glowish hue, and that was to be a symbol of his royal majesty, of his splendor. Jesus's isn't anything of the sort in this picture. His is made by whatever weed uh, they, they, or a thorny bush that they find nearby, they, they fat, they, they take some of the, of the tendrils of the bush or the weed and they, uh, put together a crown and they shove it on his head. These long, sharp thorns digging into the flesh of his brow. That's a crown no king would want. That's a crown no king, no real king would tolerate being given and having forced on his head. And then in going on, they add to the mock robe and the mock crown, they give him a mock address. They began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews! this is a mockery of how they would address caesar if he were if if they were in his presence that their address would be respectful it would be it would be giving of praise anybody who approached caesar and came before his throne as he sat there would give this kind of greeting they would say hail caesar victor emperor which means greeting caesar conqueror of the empire or conqueror of the world. Now that word hail itself uh, is, is trying to take a whole swath of respect and to cram it into one word. It has something like, sir, sir, it is an honor. It is. I mean, have you ever met somebody that you really look up, looked up to and you're thinking what, how can you take this and cram it into one word? Sir, it is a pleasure to meet you. I am honored to meet you. Thank you for taking the time to, to come out and to, 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 to see me today. That is what is encompassed in this word. And we understand there are different standards of language that we would use. You would, you would speak one way. You would use a certain category of words if you are talking to your uh, subordinates or your peers. But there are words that you would reserve for your superiors, for people who are high above you. That is this word, hail. And that's why it's a mocking sarcasm that they hail Jesus, king of the Jews. Are they treating him like he's a real king? No. They acclaim him, they address him king, king of the Jews, as if there's some legitimacy that he is somebody worthy of praise. As if he is worthy of recognition, as if he is worthy of their respect, but look look at the way they're treating him. in their eyes, he's a nobody. in their eyes, he doesn't even deserve the dirt on their boots. He is one more religious nut. He is a Jewish quack with delusions of his own grandeur. And it's probably not a stretch to think that to as they're bowing and as they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they're probably snickering. They're probably laughing. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> King, King of the Jews, <laughs> look at you. and so they greet him with a greeting that no no king would tolerate the fact that he stands there silent like a sheep before its shears he doesn't rebuke them he doesn't challenge them he just silently takes it in their eyes that's completely vindicating their actions then they give him a mock scepter they are completing the picture Mark says that they, they kept beating his head with a reed. And Matthew tells us that before they, before they were beating him with it, they had stuck it in his hand. I wonder if they took some twine or some of the, some of the, um, uh, the bush that they had used to create the crown and they had wrapped it around, uh, they had fastened it into his hand and then wrapped his hand so that he couldn't let go. It's not in the text, but it's not, it's not, uh, Wrong to think that that could happen. They beat, and then they would take that reed out of his hand, and they would beat his head with it. Now that word reed, it, it literally means stick. It, it could have been anything from a twig used for, for kindling. Uh, it could even be an arrow. It just means stick. And they stick it where? in According to Matthew, it's in his right Hand. That is, that is the hand which a king would use to wield, to grasp, and to employ his scepter. Like a crown, the scepter is a symbol of his majesty. The, the, the scepter is a symbol of his power and his authority to subjugate others, to compel others, to force Other people to bow to him and to do his will, to obey him and to do his bidding. But this king's scepter is useless to him. This, this scepter isn't being used. It isn't being wielded to subject people to his, to do his bidding. It is being used To subject them to, to subject him to their bidding. It is not being used for him, it is being used against him as they wield it like a baseball bat and they strike his head again and again and again, each blow driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his brow. A scepter no king would want. And then they complete the package. They complete the picture with mock reverence, spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And when men came before a monarch, what did they use their mouths to do? Deliver words of praise, honor, They would say kind words. They would say uplifting words. They would say respectful words. Words of praise. Words of adulation. But these men aren't doing that. They are using their mouths to hurl spit and phlegm into Jesus' bloody face and into his mangled hair. And what's vivid, what Mark tells us is who has an NIV? Okay. Do you see the again and again? The NASB says they kept. I'm not sure how the ESV renders it. But all of these, uh, those two ideas, they kept doing this. Or again and again, I actually like the NIV the best. All three of these actions, spitting and kneeling and bowing these are all being done again and again like like a vicious carousel like a sick twisted carnival ride it's just going around and around and around one group is spitting on him while another group is kneeling before him another another a third group is prostrating themselves Again, how many men is this? Up to 600 men. Brutish thugs mocking Jesus. It's a little hard to get through this when you think about what they did to our Lord. A takeaway. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna put a, a takeaway into a into a, a small pithy maxim, it could be this. Perception doesn't govern the truth. Perception doesn't govern the truth. What did the soldiers perceive in Jesus? What did they see when they looked at the Lord? Jesus. Did they see lordship? No. And yet, what is the truth about him? They drape him with a smelly, bloody, dirty, faded, worn-out soldier's garb as a robe, as a mock robe. But yet, John 12, quoting Isaiah 6 says that he has a robe that fills the temple and that the whole earth is full of his glory. His robe is right now splattered with his blood as he is being beaten. But his robe will then be spattered with the blood of his enemies as he treads the winepress of God's fierce wrath in the last day. The crown, it's, it is now a crown, it is a mockery crown, it is full of thorns, which, mind you, what was the first uh, symbol, what was the first evidence or the first fruit of the curse? Thorns. Cursed is the ground because of you, it will produce Thorns. If you ever wanted a, if you, if you have ever asked for a vivid picture of what it means for Christ to become a curse, to embrace this cursed creation, look at, think of the thorns as they are penetrating his brow. He has a crown right now full of thorns. It is ridiculous to look at it is painful for him to wear but the crown he will wear in the last day it will be a glory for him to wear and it will be painful for his enemies to look at revelation says that he is crowned with many diadems the diadem is one of the most beautiful crowns you'll ever find on this earth and the diadems that heaven's forge creates no craftsman on earth can match that glory the address with which they hail him with, they hail him in mockery now as a as a fraud king who can do nothing to impede or stop or halt their insults. He is speechless before him now. It is they who will be speechless in shame before him then they will have no leg to stand on when they stand before him they will be the, they will be kneeling and and prostrate for, before him then and they will address him as he rightfully is they will hail him as king but not just king of the jews king of the cosmos they what does revelation say his name is the name that is written on his thigh on his robe he's not just king he is king of kings he's not just a lord he is lord of all lords the scepter he will have then will be different from his scepter now his scepter now is a is a twig it's a it is a paltry stick useless to jesus as it's being used against him. Yet, Revelation says Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Hebrews quotes Psalm uh, when it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. And it's, although it's a different tool, I think it's the same idea. Revelation says that he has a sword that comes out of his mouth. He doesn't just wave around for show. What does he do with that sword? He slays his enemies. The mock reverence that they give him now, it is fraudulent. It is fake. It is phony. They stand over him as though he is a nobody. As if he is the village idiot. As if he is mentally insane. As if he is delusional. As if he is somebody who must answer to them, but they will have to answer to him when he sits on his throne. Beloved, in that day they are going to see him. All flesh will see him for who he really is, for what they really is. And mankind will have no choice but to recognize his authority in that day. They will kneel. They will prostrate themselves. Not as reconciled friends. But as subjugated enemies. Beloved, isn't this what he has been saying? Isn't this what he said to the Sanhedrin? You are judging me now. There is coming a day where the roles are going to be reversed. Reversed. They revere him mockingly now, they will revere him then. Perception does not define or govern the truth. Now, that is an indicative uh, takeaway. This this give you an applicational takeaway, and I'm gonna I want to quote Psalm two, ten to twelve. I think this is appropriate. In light of Who Jesus is in light of the scripture showing us who Jesus really is. He's not this weak little thing. This weak bloodied mass of muscle and bone. He is the king. This is what Psalm 2 says. Now therefore, O kings, and we are all included in there, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we pray. That you would keep the truth of who you are firmly settled in our hearts and minds. The world doesn't see you who you you are. The world rejects you. They will one day know the truth. Until that time you are patient. You are gracious to sinners. You are long suffering. Not willing. Not desiring that that anybody be lost. But being patient so that all those whose names are written in your book of life will have the opportunity to hear your gospel and respond in faith to it. Lord, may our hearts be even more firmly settled in this glorious truth that you took our place. Help us all to have clarity as we Share that blessed truth as we share that gospel with our friends, with our loved ones. Help us to not be impatient. Help us to not lose heart when, when they don't respond the way we would like. Quicken their hearts. Remind us to be people of prayer. Knowing that it's your spirit who enables people to turn to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for taking our place. Amen.